0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Shakespeare needs no introduction. His plays are almost everywhere, almost all the time, and his messages have brought meaning to people for hundreds of years. But will that always be the case? Let's not forget that Shakespeare could become Chaucer,
1: right? an author who is in the canon, we know, but actually you don't
0: engage with, right? Most people can't cite lines from Chaucer. To some, repurposing or reshaping Shakespeare's work might seem like sacrilege, but to others, it's an inspiring and creative way to reach contemporary Americans and honor his legacy. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Scholar and professor Ayanna Thompson teaches college students from all backgrounds how to connect with Shakespeare's work. She joins playwright and director James Imes for a conversation about finding the Bard's core messages in our lives today. Imes' play Fat Ham is a reinterpretation of Hamlet that won the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Oscar Eustace, the artistic director of the Public Theater in New York, where Fat Ham premiered, moderates the discussion. Here's Eustace.
2: This is about Shakespeare. This is about Shakespeare in our contemporary moment. But it's really the extraordinary artistic achievement of James that has brought this particular panel together. Um, his play, Fat Ham, premiered last year at the Public Theater. Uh, won the Pulitzer Prize three days before the first preview so the <laughs> theater, can claim no credit for it. Um, it. It's then gone on to Broadway, where it is closing this Sunday. was nominated for five uh, Tony Awards. And it just... Before we start, we're gonna play you. you know, forgive me, this isn't actually an ad for the Broadway show, but playing this brief clip, I think, will give you a sense of what Fan Am is about, which will then allow us to understand what James is saying better. So if we're ready for the clip.
3: I think my uncle had my father killed. Yeah! Now my father wants me to kill my uncle.
4: Sinimal! Like revenge? What are
3: you gonna do? I think I'm gonna kill someone. Do
4: it! Whoever it is, do what you want. Some help. You're intense. I'm expressive. The secret is the rub. Ah,
3: there's the rub. What? Shakespeare.
4: If you bring up that dead or white man one more time, oh, damn. you always gotta go deep. Did you see what just happened there? You don't get to go crazy, baby. No, I want to be soft.
1: I guess that's what we do in today. Even
4: if I did do it.
1: Whoa. But you did sound a little
4: guilty.
1: <laughs>
3: Shakespeare was right. This be madness.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, James, there was Hamlet and then there was Fat Ham. Yes. How did this happen?
5: Well, okay, so I, I think I'm coming around to the fact that I start to want to adapt to Shakespeare when I see it done really poorly. <laughs> so I, have a produc- I saw a production of it that I didn't love. It just like, frustrated me. And I was like, it, it wanted to put so much distance between the story and those characters and the audience. And how many people in here have read Hamlet or have seen it? Okay, it's a fantastic play right don't put that distance between us and the performance, and I wanted to see if I could bring it closer to my experience closer to the way people that I grew up with sounded like, yeah. and I discovered that the the um, they mapped onto each other really beautifully mm. they meaning the, the the sort of culture of the South <laughs> and this sort of Uh, fractured kingdom in Denmark that is at the center of Hamlet.
2: And could you say a word or two about your experience as an actor in graduate school? Yes.
5: So when I was in grad school, most of my uh, professional career I was an actor and uh, I trained in an MFA program and I had Shakespeare for three years and for three years they told me all of the ways that I was doing it incorrectly I was embodying it incorrectly my voice and my uh, accent, my regionalism which I don't really think I have much of, was getting in the way of... I the
1: think they text. were saying you were black. That's,
5: that's exactly what they were saying, but it was, you know, a, a kinder song. We're calling time. it regional now. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I, you know, I, it, it kept me from, I would turn down auditions to audition professionally for Shakespeare because I was very anxious about it. Um, and then it like dawned on me that like, I grew up, reading from the King James Bible in church, listening to people that look like me speak that text every week of my life, multiple days of the week. And I was like, that text belongs to me, that way of speaking, that level of heightened text. I can meet it and it's actually built for me. Um, and for a lot of different reasons that made Fat Ham so easy, and that's why it's a, a combination of text that's from the actual script of Hamlet and yeah. then the rest of it is mine Because I want those things to sort of butt up against each other because right. I think that they they are beautiful in dialogue
2: well, it's uh, uh, You know, I think it's a work of genius It's extraordinary extraordinary okay. play James okay. and we're going to talk more about it, but I want to just take the lens back for a second and talk Because, you know, we always have the problem of what do we do when we produce Shakespeare, because these are 400-year-old plays. And the analogy that I would suggest is that you think of that the play, the the written script stands in relationship to the play, much like the score of Beethoven's Ninth stands in relationship to a performance of Beethoven's Ninth. The artwork isn't the score. The artwork is the performance that comes off of the score. But, of course, what Beethoven writes is much more determined from the... We know what a French horn is. We know what a piano is. We know what a cello is. But Shakespeare writes these... They're for actors, but we don't know the color of the actor. We don't know the size, the shape, the gender of the actor. So there's a huge latitude for interpretation everywhere Shakespeare's produced. And that means that Shakespeare productions, as with all theater are always taking place in the exact moment and at the exact place they're taking place. There's no other way to do Shakespeare. We, we, nothing we do will relieve us from the burden of having to create that theater for this moment. And Ayanna, you've spent uh, a fair amount of time. <laughs> I was like, don't age me. <laughs> <laughs> so A tiny amount of time. You've written a lot of books in that <laughs> tiny amount of time. I was uh, a wunderkind. <laughs> looking at... Shakespeare in performance, Shakespeare in in America, the encounters with race, and I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about the context of appropriating Shakespeare.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's funny because when we were talking amongst ourselves uh, before meeting with you all, I said, we're in this weird post-Garrick moment in the US Shakespeare, and Oscar said, don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll explain what I mean. Explain who Garrick is. (laughs) So David Garrick was this uh, British actor in the 19th century who decided that Shakespeare, as it had been performed um, basically since the Restoration until the 19th century, was wrong. I'll get back to why he thought it was wrong. Um, But he was like, we have to get back to the real Shakespeare he was a genius. He was the, he came up with the phrase, you know, bardolatry, like worshiping Shakespeare. And I feel like we're now 200 years later in American Shakespeare performances still caught in that moment where Shakespeare can feel very intimidating and uninviting to a lot of people and a lot of people who look like James and me in particular. Um, it is funny when I teach large lecture Shakespeare classes, my students are always surprised when I start the lecture, they're like, uh, and I say, you weren't expecting me to be your Shakespeare teacher, were you? (laughs) But um, what Garrick was objecting to, which I think James did beautifully and perfectly in Fat Ham was that in the restoration, so this is the 1660s on, when the theaters had been closed for a while during the English Civil War, when they reopened, women were on stage for the first time, they moved into smaller indoor theaters, but the the playwrights who were working with Shakespeare's text decided that they weren't All perfect. And in fact, they could be improved upon frequently. And those restoration rewrites were what was staged from 1660 till about 1860. And they are hilarious because, you know, King Lear ends with Cordelia living and marrying Edgar. That's not a bad ending, actually. (laughs) Um, uh, Dryden's Tempest, uh, Miranda has a sister, which is hilarious. Um, You know, we get the flying witches back in Macbeth Um, so there's the ways that they encountered Shakespeare wasn't as a holy text that you had to like pray down before before and every word had to be staged exactly as it was printed Um, they thought of them as living breathing documents that you adapt to make them fit your own moment and I think what Fat Ham is ushering us back into, which is a very, very exciting for me, is a moment where we get to play with Shakespeare more, that he is our co-author, our co-creator, as opposed to a god that we have to worship. And I think this gets precisely to your point, Oscar, about Shakespeare's always in the moment, um, but there are ways in which many American theaters have fought that, right? And I'm sure, have you all seen a production in pumpkin pants at your regional theater in St. Louis. You know what I mean? Like, great. <laughs> it's
2: a great city. We love St. Louis.
1: <laughs> but, right, there's not a reason for us to to treat them as texts that were um, solidified or calcified in 1601, right? There's ways in which we should think about them as co-authors with us in 2023.
2: Yeah, one of one of the things that I've I feel when I look to the future is Shakespeare is either going to belong to everybody or he's going to belong to almost nobody because the theater, unlike some other forms, is not very good at retreating and becoming sort of a high art that people can use to distinguish themselves from the uneducated masses. The theater just is too messy for that. It's easier to do with some of our sister art forms. So either we're going to figure out a way that Shakespeare actually belongs to everybody here, or I think it's going to be very hard to keep him relevant. Yeah. Keep him central to our lives.
1: I think that's exactly right. I'm on the board of The Royal Shakespeare Company in England, and um, one of the things that I say at almost every board meeting is, let's not forget that Shakespeare could become Chaucer, right? An author who is in the canon, we know, but actually you don't engage with, right? Most people can't cite lines from Chaucer. Actually, I bet all of you can do the prologue. (laughs) <laughs> but, right, most, most people in the U.S. can't. So I do think that, that we are precisely at the crossroads.
2: But then it begs the question, why should we? What is the value in preserving our relationship to Shakespeare as opposed to any other author? I mean,
5: I think he's dealing in what I call primordial stories. So across culture, across time, they kind of matter to us. Like Hamlet at its core is Cain and Abel, a brother kills his brother and it's not good and the kids suffer. That's, that, that's what that play is. Hmm. That's what that play is about. Hmm. And we can always learn from that. That's always something that's going to be useful to us. I also think the, the desire and the aspiration in the theater to speak in a way that is elevated. Like, I don't want to go to the theater, this is me personally, to see people do stuff that I do at home. <laughs> that's why, why do I want to go and see people washing dishes right. and vacuuming the floor? Now, if they're vacuuming the floor and the floor is covered in glitter and it's fabulous, that's interesting to me <laughs> because I'm like, why is there glitter on the floor? Yeah. But like um, what Shakespeare does is that it, it asks us to imagine together, like when you think about how they did those plays, they're on bare stages with people dressed in their everyday clothes. So it forced the audience to enter into an imagination act with the people watching. Mm-hmm. Right. And And that I think is the thing that's really important that we've lost culturally because we are sort of experiencing things in single audience experiences primarily in our lives Mm -hmm. so when you are brought into a theater where the the piece is asking you to imagine with other people that's powerful that creates civic dialogue even when people aren't talking
1: and you know just to remind us all that you know western theatrical tradition started in ancient greece yes which had the you know, earliest form of Western democracy. And part of the theater there was that there were stories about slaves and women, people who weren't in the Senate who could vote. But the senators went to the theater to hear these stories about people whose lived experiences were widely different from their own. Mm. So that, that moment of encountering something collectively and grappling with it, Shakespeare is the best vehicle for that, not because necessarily the stories are universal. There's so much sexism, anti-semitism, classism, racism in those plays that they don't quite resonate to me in what I think of as universal. Nonetheless, they have their chock-a-block with problems instead of answers, Mm. and that's the vehicle that we need to get into as a collective and say and then open up the dialogue together. Where do we want to go next year? That next 20 years the next hundred years Shakespeare's a great vehicle to get us talking through those problems
5: and there's oh, Well, I was gonna say they're so layered like I'll, I'll keep using Hamlet because it's it's the one I'm the most intimately connected with at the moment Everyone talks about that play as a revenge play but that play is also about cycles of violence Fortinbras bras is on his way yep. why because Hamlet's dad did something awful to his dad And now we have Hamlet's dad coming to Hamlet and saying, I want you to fix this for me. So Hamlet has to decide, what is he gonna do? Am I gonna keep doing this thing that has only brought more and more death and destruction to this place that we live, or do I wanna change? And that's like the question of Fat Ham is, what happens if Hamlet says, I want to live? My Hamlet lives at the end of the play. So does my Gertrude. So does my... Uh,
3: Ophelia. La-
5: Ophelia and, La- and Laertes. They're all alive at the end. Our Polonius is alive at the end. The only one that dies is Claudius, and he chokes to death and won't take Hamlet from anyone. <laughs> because... You know what I'm saying? Like that is is actually a a commentary on toxic masculinity that you wouldn't necessarily see in Hamlet, but it's there. It's like absolutely embedded in that play, but they didn't have the language for it, but we do now so we can use those plays to talk about those things.
2: Uh, I mean, that single insight, which of course you found in writing, not theorizing, the relationship to the difficult revenge tragedy mm-hmm. that is Hamlet and the cycles of violence in the black family in particular. Or all families. Right. Like the, we, although all, the, yeah. we have That specific thing that yeah. our Horatio says to our yes. Hamlet, you yeah. know, your daddy went to prison, his daddy mm-hmm. went to prison, his dad, before that slavery. Mm-hmm. And then saying that in order to change that history, we have to change the form, the dramatic form of tragedy yeah. to something else. If we accept tragedy as the essential dramatic form, we're actually accepting a story that we don't need to accept.
5: Mm-hmm. I mean I challenge the the efficacy of of tragedy as a, a teaching tool. <laughs> I don't know that it teaches anybody anything. Mm-hmm. But what I do know night after night at that theater watching Fat Ham is that we teach people how to unlock joy.
2: That's right. And that's powerful magic to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I wish you could all see the show because it is powerful magic. It is pure joy. But you know, part of what I felt when you were saying is that you sexism, anti Semitism, classism Racism, (laughs) those those all feel very contemporary. Absolutely. feel like good things.
1: No, no. I mean, I think that's why, you know Many of my students uh, come to Shakespeare class because it's a requirement Some students come because they think it's part of being educated, but you know, not not the vast majority Um, And I always ask them at the beginning of class How many of you don't want to actually take this class and you know some of them some of them will raise their hands and I'm like you are my perfect student. You're my perfect student. You're the reluctant learner. I was like, all the things that you're actually interested in are in these plays. You've just been meant to feel that these plays weren't about you. And I'm here to show you that all the things, all the the social issues that we're still grappling with are in these plays. And then I start every class with Titus Andronicus because none of my students have heard it. None of them have seen the film, even though it's available, right? Like they've never heard it. And I'm like, your mind's gonna be blown. And they come back the next class and they're like, there's a biracial baby? I'm like, yeah, 1594 and there's a biracial (laughs) baby. So I just think once you can get to a space with younger people where Shakespeare feels like he's talking to them, then everything's unlocked, right? Now, if everyone could go to the public, it would be unlocked for them because I think the productions that you produce have that effect. But, you know, my poor working class students in Arizona have never left the state, right? Mm. So that, let alone been to a theater. Mm. So, Mm. yeah.
2: Um, So you've written a lot about specifically the intersection of race and Shakespeare. Mm. written a lot about casting. Yes. I wonder if you could talk just a little about the problematics that that's raised.
1: Yeah, so for, you know, a long time, especially when Shakespeare was writing, although, well, no, I'll finish the sentence, it was just white men performing on stage. Um, And that was what I was taught. By the way, we have some new archival information about black trumpeters, black tutors who were living in London at the time. So I do this thought experiment about like, what if that black tutor is a groundling at the production of Othello? Like, what's happening there? Mm. (laughs) But anyway, um, so the the roles were written for white men to perform, including the women's parts. Um, We jump ahead into the 19th century we have a black theater company in new york the african theater very close to the public theater in fact um, where it was a black theater company putting on shakespeare's plays and the rival white theater company could not handle it wrote um you know screeds about how poor their acting was, how they didn't know what they were saying, how they didn't unders- clearly they couldn't have understood what the words that they were saying because they were taking audiences away from the white theater. So there's always been this moment for black free black Americans who were putting on Shakespeare where they're like I'm gonna find my self-expression through this art and it was challenged by racism, right? Um, but then, so if we jump it, and we all know about Paul Robeson, who was, um, did p- famous performances of Othello in the f- 30s all the way up to the 50s. Um, and then right around the 1980s, there was this explosion of colorblind casting, which was, the idea was we should cast the best actor in the best part. Now, we can all interrogate what best Part and actor means, but it was a way of trying to diversify the theater space. Uh, Were you coming up through a colorblind approach in your education? Very much so. Yeah, Yeah.
5: and I consistently played characters that were white, written white, and with no help of like. So, can I be can I be black in this? (laughs) Like that was all. And I, you know, once I became professional, I was like, I would ask that question. Are, are we doing a black character? Or are we doing, is your production doing a white character? Right. And most of the time they would say it doesn't matter, which to me was telling me, do this, not that.
1: But also that they were uncomfortable having yeah. the conversation. Yeah. And so, and a lot of, um, I will say, you know, as I said, I work on the the Royal Shakespeare Company on their board. A lot of um, black, uh, British productions still do colorblind casting, although... Thank the heavens the new artistic directors at the Royal Shakespeare Company said they're not doing it anymore. But we've moved now to a place, specifically to what James just articulated, is where we want to find a way for actors to think about how their whole person, right, brings a set of meanings to the production and that character that may or may not be at odds with the text. And then what do you do with that? But it does take having very frank and honest conversations, which most of us are not trained to do. So I get brought in to try and to help facilitate this because I'm like, I'll have the conversation with anyone about like, oh, you want to play um, King Lear mm-hmm. and your daughters are all white? Are we supposed to think you adopted them? <laughs> Are we not supposed to notice and then what how much mental calculus are we doing and Taking away from listening to the beautiful verse of King Lear wondering What is the relationship between this black man and these three white girls? So so
2: (laughs) so let me talk as an old white guy for a second with the history of the public theater because Joe Papp in the 1950s began what we later called colorblind casting. I mean, famously, James Earl Jones was Lear, and Jill Clayburgh was Ophelia, uh, Cordelia. And you know, again, the idea that any actor should be able to play any part in Shakespeare, and that the most important thing was that the stage should look like New York City. It should not look like anywhere else. The people up there should look like the subway stop. Mm-hmm and that idea was at the time radical caused a lot of very radical a lot of pushback but part of what and i grew up within that movement and defending that practice and a lot of what i would say about that particular question is if you're saying you can't imagine that james is the father of a white daughter you are saying that his race is so essential to who he is is so permanently that you cannot suspend your disbelief the way we commonly do about the age of actors, or that Shakespeare's audience did about the genders of actors. They knew those were boys playing those parts, but they could suspend. And that uh, we felt at the time that there was something wrong about the idea that race was so central to the view that there was no way to... um, it as one of those contingent things that doesn't have to be central, but obviously that's changed in recent We we don't do colorblind casting no. anymore. No, and But I- it's it's made it a much more vexed conversation.
5: Yeah, I think we just have. I think we've become hungrier for better dramaturgy, and what that requires is this family needs to make some kind of sense. Yeah. Now I think a black Lear with three white daughters is. It's interesting only if we're telling a story about the mother. Yes. Then that's interesting. Then it's like, those aren't his kids at all.
1: <laughs> uh, and know what?
5: And no wonder he's so mean yeah. to, you know, Goneril and Regan. But you have to take that extra step with the dramaturgy that it's not just, well, everybody, it's fine. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It does. That's right. right. We, the story and how the people move through the story really does matter. So I, I make the case that, like, colorblind, which is not a thing that one can be. Well, that's not true. People can be colorblind. But, like. Not race-blind. <laughs> They're not race-blind. <laughs> and when we say colorblind, that's what we're talking right, about. Right. you know. And lived experience is a gift to the actor. Yeah. And so if you have an actor of color that has to mute a whole right. section of who they are in order to be in this play, you don't have the best performance coming out of that actor. Yeah.
2: And that's, that's the core critique, that what colorblind was doing actually was Having a de facto white norm, yes, that it was asking everybody to giving people permission to participate, in yeah. but it was still based on a white normativity that required actors of color to suppress parts of who they were.
1: But even, I mean, I mean, I feel like it's sad that we've forgotten so much of Joe Papp's story because not, not you haven't, but he moved away from colorblind casting mm-hmm. in his career. And in the 70s, he was like, no, actually, I think we should have like an all-Hispanic company and an all-black company and tell the story so that it relates to their communities, right? And s- instead of having the James Earl Jones, Jill Claiborne um, uh, moment anymore, he really moved away and his thought really evolved. I would say American theater practices did not evolve with him.
6: Though. Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and I think that was, you know, a moment of the 1980s. Which is not so different from the moment we're having now where people would say if you're asking me to Think about race then uh, you know, that's too hard. And so that problem is you (laughs) <laughs> and so then we shouldn't have to. We don't have to talk about it, right? right? And I feel like we are in a very, very similar moment now, where people are like, "Ugh, you know, that's your problem, not my problem." And instead of, "Well, we all live here together," <laughs> I think it's our collective problem, right? Yeah.
2: Well, and for those of us producing the shows, what is meant is exactly what you say: a huge number of very difficult conversations. Yes. Which. Um, uh, are on the one hand they've liberated some enormous energy and at other times they've gone badly. They have and you can actually look and say, oh that production has been damaged because of the conversations they had that they didn't know how to finish, yes. that they didn't know how to complete. And that's both on the one hand scary and the other hand is thrilling because it means there's this territory yeah. that we still have to find of what is America's relationship to these plays, mm-hmm. and how do we invent it? And of course, in a way, you leapt over a lot of this, by saying, <laughs> "I'm going to reinvent the whole damn play. I'm going to use it for my purposes." I mean, people, everybody uses Shakespeare. West Side
5: Story, The Lion King. <laughs> uh, oh, she's, what is it? She's all that. So there's, you know, Ten Things I Hate About You. <laughs> like, we are constantly appropriating from that man. And it's because we were all forced, and I use that word on purpose, forced, to read these plays without any humor, without any sort of context of why they're important. They were just medicine. And I remember reading Julius Caesar in middle school and being like, that's the dopest thing I've ever read. They stabbed that guy to death. (laughs) It was, I couldn't get over it. I was like, this is fantastic. And you know, when we talk about the reverence we hold Shakespeare, Shakespeare was trying to write Michael Bay Marvel movies. He was not trying to do high art in the way that we treat it. He wanted butts in the seats. He didn't want tomatoes on the stage. He wanted people to show up and have a good time. And he wrote him in such a way that if you walked in halfway through it, you would still have a good time. That kind of theater, that level of vitality of the theater, is something that America can achieve in our theater.
2: You know, I'm I'm with you until you said Michael Bay and <laughs> But but That's an extreme. Right. But, but what, you know I com- <laughs> what I completely agree with you about is that part of what, as a matter of fact, we might even say the decisive thing that made Shakespeare the greatest writer in the history of the English language was his audience. Mm -hmm. Because for the first time in Western history, uh, and this was Elizabethan England uh, as part of the Tudor Compromise, that not only did you not have to write to the religious doctrine of the time, you couldn't. It was illegal to talk about religious doctrine on stage because the Catholic-Protestant thing was just too loaded. So you had to write about secular subjects. You also had, a, the theater was a business for the first time. So they needed to sell tickets in order to support themselves. And nobody planned it this way. But that audience was the most diverse democratic audience that the theater had had yeah. In a thousand years, since Athens. So you had illiterate groundlings and Cambridge and Oxford graduates and aristocrats and merchants all watching the same play at the same time. And a black tutor. <laughs> yes. At this, and so what I was taught when I first studied Shakespeare is that Shakespeare did the verse part to please the Oxford and Cambridge people. He did the royal part for the aristocracy. He did the prose comedy, and that would please the groundlings. And as I became a theater person, I realized that the people who taught me this understood nothing about the theater. <laughs> when you go to the theater, if a third of the audience just checks out for 25 minutes because they don't understand the verse, the play fails. (laughs) You have to have all of the audience with you all of the time. Because for those of us who love the theater, it's something James and I were talking about earlier, a play really is just a machine for creating an audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That what the thrill that happens at the theater is the thrill of you being united with everybody else in the room. You walk into the theater, a consumer who bought a ticket, but hopefully you walk out, a member of a community who's been through an experience together. And we, we all, forgive me, that this is a anecdote Bob Brewstein used to tell that I love. We know this experientially because we, when we walk into a movie theater and it's half empty, we're thrilled. <laughs> There's plenty of space for us to spread out and we can watch the movie. If you walk into a live theater event and it's half empty, you sort of look over the shoulder and think, can I leave now? It's disappointing. And, you know, it's not just because you think, what does everybody else know that I don't know? It's also because whether you knew it or not, you came there to be part of that audience. Yeah. You came there to be and Shakespeare had to write for all of those different people, take them all through a journey at the same time, and turn them into an audience. And in a way, he was nation-building, what it means to be British. He was creating in those plays and with those theaters. And that made him expand what he wrote. So he's also the first writer I know, and maybe the only writer I can really say this about, who couldn't write a character from the outside. Every character was written from his own point of view. you know it's, he, he, he wanted to make Shylock a villain. He really did in a clown and a villain and he just couldn't do it. Shylock has his point of view that's as powerful and way more powerful than anyone else's and that audience turned him into the greatest democratic writer mm. and I think for me that 's why he 's still such a useful vehicle to knit us together even if We're knitting us together by changing him and flipping him and using him. It's still the great raw material.
5: Yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah And
1: also It's there's no subtext Mm. right like if you try and act a Shakespeare role as if you're like doing a pinter exercise you know like with pinter it's like you're saying one thing but the character actually believes the exact opposite if you try and do that in a shakespeare role oh my god it unravels un- entirely because the characters are all revealing themselves as you say
5: yeah, yeah. they say what they mean and if they're going to lie they look at us and say i'm about to lie yeah. <laughs> and then they lie that's right it's literally what happens yeah. and yeah. so what you get what you see is what you get and i as an actor loved that so much because subtext is weird to me it's like this mid-century device about repression and it's a beautiful snapshot of, of that moment in time and mid-century
1: I, modern you know what i'm saying i know
5: why people wrote that way because everybody was repressed nobody wanted to wear those freaking skirts and those suits nobody did and that's how they captured what that felt like but when you try to do that with these texts that are just sort of like more live out loud, it's just death.
2: It's the worst. And technically, of course, we encounter this sometimes with actors who are new to Shakespeare. You just don't pause very often. Mm-mm. Because you pause in a naturalistic play to be thinking things you're not saying. Shakespeare says it. Just keep talking. <laughs> That'll take care of it. Yeah. And you know, you, you can feel the difference when that drive happens. Yeah. So I, I feel obligated to also say one other thing. The title of this, panel would be different. We would be up here uh, talking in a different way if there hadn't been a storm in the English Channel in 1588. We would be talking about the genius of Lope de Vega. Mm -hmm. The triumph of Shakespeare as the greatest writer on the planet is inseparable from the triumph of the English-speaking people militarily and economically over the planet. And that is something we can't ignore we can't hide from. It's, it's, it's obviously why there's a huge legacy of colonialism with Shakespeare. Shakespeare used to teach culture to the savages. And we have to grapple with that. And at the same time say, yes, that's problematic, but it's also what actually happened. Mm. So instead of pretending that didn't happen and rejecting Shakespeare, let's use Shakespeare for different, for non-colonial purposes. Mm. Let's figure out how we can own Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. How instead of feeling like something that keeps you at a distance, that it's something you can take and digest and use for yourself.
5: I mean, that immediately makes me think of may um, um, César's Tempest, mm-hmm. which is very much from a post-colonial point of view telling that story. and. Um, you don't see that play done very often, but I think it's a beautiful, beautiful um, adaptation of a Shakespeare play. Um, and one of the ones that I read when I was preparing to do my own because he just makes it so much his own and creates so much of his, his world and his history in that story. Yeah. It's just magical.
1: And it's not surprising, right, yeah. because so many post-colonial artists, like the, you know, the greats all grappled with Shakespeare and many of them rewrote bits of Shakespeare again because they felt as if this was a a tool of part of the colonial endeavor but they also loved it and you know you can love and hate something at the same time right like and I I think that's why we have all these great post-colonial rewritings of
5: of Shakespeare. Mm. And especially when you've like you've been forced to learn a thing you're like okay I'm gonna make this it's like the desire to make it been to your will. Mm-hmm. I, I just was very hungry for that, and I hope more people do that. Yeah, not just with Shakespeare, Chekhov, <laughs> all of them.
2: You know, and it's also uh, I think to what you were saying about the language, mm. because uh, in a way, Shakespeare's achievements is almost as great as Lynn Manuel Miranda's. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. But work, I'll work it. I'll work it. Taking the common language of the people mm-hmm. and elevating it into verse drama. Mm-hmm. And by turning it into verse drama, ennobling the language yeah. and ennobling the people who speak the language. Yeah. And that process of simply turning it into that heightened language is also a process of ennobling the lives of the people you're representing up there yeah. and saying it's a... You know, I often say that lots of people use as metaphor the ideas that we're going to put somebody's center stage. We're going to put the spotlight on somebody's experience. That's what we literally do. (laughs) We literally turn the stage over to people and we say, you're the star of this show. You're central. You're the agent, not the subject of history. Mm
1: But yes, uh, just double down, a call out for more verse, right? If, if anyone's out there, a young playwright, you guys look young, young playwright. Yeah, write some verse, verse, but yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> Susan, you're very young. <laughs> but, you know, I think more verse plays would be incredibly powerful. And there is something about elevated language, and that's why we keep coming back to Shakespeare as
2: well. Mm. Yeah. So we do have a few minutes. We have a couple of microphones stationed out oh, look, there. Look, Lori, and she's w- got her hand up right fast. Right, <laughs> what, what I'm just going to say is please wait to talk to the microphone's in your hand, and we encourage questions as opposed to manifestos. Wait, Lori, it's almost <laughs> in your hands. Mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> First of all, congratulations on Fat Ham. Thank Fantastic, you. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I have a question on... Er, it's, question on your thoughts about the, you know, we've talked about colorblind um, casting. So I had the great privilege of seeing the Lehman trilogy twice. Mm-hmm. I saw it first at the Armory, you know, and they were both British cast, first at the Armory. And then I saw it right be- maybe right after uh, COVID um, on Broadway. And they had changed one of the actors, one of the three Lehman brothers, and he would I don't want to say African-American, because he was British. Yeah, it's Adrian but The great Lester.
1: great Adrian yeah, Black, Lester, yeah. yes. who's phenomenal a dear friend actor, of mine. Pheno- pheno-
6: phenomenal. <laughs> and both casts were phenomenal. But it was, you know, this was about three Jewish brothers. Now, I assume that they were never Jewish. The three actors, the white actors probably weren't Jewish either, but, you know, you didn't know that. But it 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 did make me wonder... You know why they did that. You—it was noticeable. Phenomenal actor, but so I wonder if you have any thoughts on that.
1: I, d- I do because I talked with Adrian about it. Like you, I had seen the all-white cast and then the um, the revi- the post-COVID version, um, and and the acting and the writing of that play are really really remarkable. Um, I think it was hard with Adrian as one of the three Jewish brothers, he did advocate for changing some of the dialogue. Um, I forget, I can't, I don't remember all the details, but there might have been moments when one of the brothers said, you know, you have to go do this because you're white or whatever, and, and Adrian was like, okay, we might need to, <laughs> need to change it. But you have to be a very confident actor to be able to initiate that dialogue, as you did, James, you said early on in your career, because most actors fear that they're never going to yeah. be hired again, or worse, that they'll be labeled as difficult. And if you're black and difficult, you're unhirable. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it was great that Adrian did it. I do think they could have had richer conversations about what it meant to do,
2: you know. I, I, I should also say they changed the text. When they brought it back, because at the Armory, I don't know if you noticed that the Lehman Brothers assisted the Georgian government in the aftermath of the Civil War to rebuild itself. <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, sort of glossed over the slave trading history of the Lehman Brothers. And that got changed as well. So I think there was some criticism leveled at our British comrades that they were trying to, trying to obviate. Yeah. We have a question back there. And Mike's got to get to you, it'll get to you in just a second.
3: Hi, my name is Ernest Esparza, and um, sorry, my question's not going to be that clean, but I'm still working through the thought. So the question started to be inspired last week when I went to go see Hamlet in Central Park, which was phenomenal. Thank you. Uh, And it was great, like, chilling in Central Park for two hours for my ticket, and it was lovely. (laughs) But when I heard um, to be or not to be, like, I was never really into Shakespeare, but I've been dealing with a lot of thoughts around, like, death and anxiety, and, like, listening to it, I cried because he like, just gave language to my feelings. Yeah. So, representation. Now, my question is, I'm, I have a question on Shakespeare, and I'm trying to flip it to Aspen, because a lot of what you're saying about Shakespeare is what I'm feeling in Aspen right now. Mm-hmm. With Shakespeare, there's certain texts, and you have taken, you've had the confidence to take that text and make it your own. In Aspen, it feels like there's certain conversations or there's certain decorum that we need to be and I'm struggling, and others are also like working through how do I take Aspen but make it me?
2: Mm. So,
3: <laughs> how did you find the confidence to do it in the text of Shakespeare? Take something that's always been taught in a certain way and say, I'm making it my own. Um, and also, how did you like, give the opportunity for Hamlet as like, it was very black Hamlet? Yeah. How did, why, like, what made you feel comfortable giving that freedom of expression? And then, with that, I'm hoping to find the answer that I can find the expression of me in Aspen being mm-hmm. myself as I navigate in the space. Be I hope that makes thought.
2: sense. Mm. Totally. Totally. Yes.
5: I, I kind of went through um, a pretty intense phase of like, hyper-focus on authenticity, because I had spent most of my career as an actor, which is about being all the people. And when I realized I, would, I wanted to shift to playwriting, I had to, I had to go, what do, I, what do I believe? What do I think is true? What is real for me? What is, what is my authenticity? And when I found that, you couldn't stop me. Like I moved through the, these spaces very much myself. I'm speaking very much like myself now um, because there's only one me, right? I'm one of one right? Is that what Beyonce says? <laughs> I'm the only one, there's just one me. And so why would you in any way try to mash, shape, contort who that person is to fit into any box, even if it's as, a lovely box as aspirin is? Like, Always be in these spaces, saying what you feel like is very true, speaking in your authentic voice with all of the stuff that comes with that, with the colloquialism that comes with that, whether or not people get it or not, it does not matter, right? That's how you are able to be okay in these spaces. So then when you sit down to write a play and say, I'm going to take Hamlet, arguably the most famous play in the world, <laughs> and you're going to do a whole new version of it. I, you know, someone's like, that takes a lot of like gendered language balls to do that. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the dumb thing to say to me. Um, it takes hard work. It takes imagination. It takes creativity. It takes, um, I'll say hutzpah. <laughs> but like at the end of the day, it's still an experiment in trying to create something that goes in front of an audience. It could have failed. <laughs> it yeah. could have gone horribly, you know, but sh- that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it because you have something to say. So it, it's really about like for me, it, it's been a journey of trying to make sure that I'm speaking from a truly authentic space and never changing, augmenting, lopping off parts of myself to fit into anybody's coffin, because they'll, they'll bury you and say you enjoyed it. You asked for it.
2: <laughs> yeah. The, the director of that Hamlet, Kenny Leon, wrote a memoir and the title of it is Take Yourself Wherever You Go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I just want to say, it's a journey for everybody. Yeah. It's, it's, it's work, it do, doesn't come quickly. James earned that. Mm. Yeah, right down here.
6: First, I have to say, Oscar, your voice is so unbelievable. Were you an actor? If so, please be one again. <laughs> I would come to anything you're in. Um, <laughs> for the professor, um, James said that he got Permission and exposure from the church and in language. What was your start or beginning as far as Shakespeare and Second of all I read somewhere and I don't know the exact number. I'm going to say a hundred There are a hundred phrases that we use in language today that came from Shakespeare How is this possible other than he's a genius? I mean is this hasn't happened with anyone else has it? No,
1: it's part of well It's complicated, but it's part of the colonial project, right? Shakespeare was used by the missionaries and the colonists across the globe as a civilizing exercise and then part of the standardization of American education, um, Shakespeare was included because there wasn't a lot of sex. So, (laughs) so, you know, those phrases become part of our common discourse, not accidentally. He was a genius. His plays are amazing, the language is unbelievable, but so was Lope de Vega, right? You know, and we don't know any of his phrases. Um, so I grew up very working class poor. Um, I did not go to theater growing up. I did theater. I participated in theater, but I, I didn't um, go to theater, professional theater. Um, one year, my mother came into a little bit of money, and she announced that we were going to England, and I was so excited. I was a teenager, and I was like punk rocked out, you know, like I had, you know. <laughs> Still in my DNA, punk rock. But <laughs> so I was like, London, woohoo! And she's like, We're going to Stratford upon Avon. And I was like, What? And she's like, And we're going to see Romeo and Juliet at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I was like, No, no! <laughs> like I want to go find like you know the punk p- clubs, right? <laughs> but this production that I ended up seeing was colorblind cast. Mm. And Tybalt was played by the wonderful Hugh Corshi, a black British actor. Um, Sean Bean was Romeo. Um, what's, uh, Neem Cusack was Juliet. And, and they wore leather. Like the ho- And they rode on motorcycles, and it was like, sexy, sexy, sexy. And I watched this show, and I was like, oh my God, Shakespeare's amazing. <laughs> I-, I didn't think I was going to pursue a career in Shakespeare, and I didn't. I became an investment banker at Lehman Brothers first. <laughs> I had nothing to do with the f- downfall. <laughs> um, but I think that that first production lodged in there. And so, all of my work on race and casting, I think I can attribute back to that production, so. That's really interesting. Isn't is amazing? And I also, you know, there, there is some research about the special moment for students in Shakespeare, and it's around eight and nine. And then there's another moment around 13, 14, 15. And if you can get every eight and nine-year-old to go see a really hot, vibrant production of Shakespeare, That's it, they're They're in. They don't have that intimidation moment. So, if I were Jeff Bezos, I wouldn't be trying to send myself into space. I would be getting theater tickets for every eight and nine year
2: old on the planet. We have time for one more. Right here, right here, Uh, right here, right here. Up here, here, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Wait till the microphone gets to you because then we record you forever. <laughs> <laughs> all
4: right. Hi, everyone. Jenny with the G from Georgia. Um, I want to thank you. I actually saw a clip of Fat Ham on TikTok. So <laughs> that's how I was introduced to it. Um, and my question to you all is the South. Hmm. Okay. There's a lot of stuff happening in the South yeah. and that idea of finding joy in trauma is all we got. So my question to you all is, what are opportunities for Southern youth to get involved in Really learning about programs on Broadway, getting involved in acting, because I know a lot of youth who want to be actors, a lot of them want to be rappers, and a lot of them want to be TikTok stars, but I think what everybody wants is exposure. So, how are students of under 18 being allowed to be exposed to programs like this, or what funding do you need so we can make that happen?
5: Oh, gosh. Um, Well, I can tell you, just very specifically, that the the first production of this play was done at the Wilma Theater, which is in Philadelphia, where I was a co-artistic director. And we did it as a filmed production because it was during the pandemic. You can get that film and use it in your classroom with materials anytime you want. That is available to you for a small fee, but it is available to you. I don't. I don't. It doesn't come to me, but it does. It does. It's just a little bit of of money. I, I love that you mentioned TikTok, which is this amazing space. I know it's Chinese spyware or whatever people say it is, but it also is this amazing sort of space where you sort of discover things that you didn't know existed. Um, I think kids find community in those spaces now, and. Um, they're just exposed to more. So they, they can see a clip from Fat Ham and go, oh, I can't get to that, but I want to, they won't forget about it. It'll stay with them. Um, and like, reach out to folks like us, and if we can help, we'll help. <laughs> I guess that's what I would say.
1: And, and I would also say that almost every um, classical theater company in the US, whether it's large or small, has an education department that is specifically trying to do outreach in their community. So if there's a, you're in Georgia, there is that. Um,
2: there's the Alliance, there's True Colors, yeah. uh, there's the uh, Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Yeah. Yep. And there's, all of those theaters have outreach programs. And, but the biggest thing is do it. Just yeah. don't, don't wait for permission, don't wait for, just yeah. get folks together and start reading it. Yeah. Start doing it, you own it, right? And then we'll figure out how to get you.
1: Or maybe we get Lori Tisch to pay for it all.
2: <laughs> Yay, Lori! Okay, okay. Now, that means we have to stop. Right? Right. Thank you very much. <laughs> James, Diana, thank you.
0: James Imes is a playwright, director, and educator. He's an associate professor of theater at Villanova University and co-artistic director at the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia. I'm's play Fat Ham won the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Other notable works include Kill Move Paradise, TJ Loves Sally Forever, and The Most Spectacularly Lamentable Trial of Ms. Martha Washington. Ayana Thompson is Regents Professor of English at Arizona State University and the Director of the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. She's the author of several books including Blackface Teaching Shakespeare with Purpose – A Student-Centered Approach, and Passing Strange – Shakespeare Race and Contemporary America. Oscar Eustace has been the Artistic Director of the Public Theater in New York City since 2005. He's also a professor of dramatic writing at New York University Tisch School of the Arts. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.